Hello and welcome to the Hidden Gems Movie Podcast. Yes, that is correct. The Hidden Gems Movie Podcast. No longer the Fat Man and Little Boy Podcast. The reason being, while Steve is still a fat man, I am no longer a little boy. Hey, I've lost some weight, pal. <laughs> no, no. So It's the COVID thing. Yeah, right. Good point. <laughs> Plus, you know, you're, you're broke. Um, yeah. <laughs> let's be real. Um, the, re- the Fat Man and Little Boy Podcast movie name is based off the fact there is a pretty bad movie, actually, called <laughs> The Fat uh, Fat Man Little Boy, right? It's, um, it's about the making of the... Uh, Roland atomic, Joffe, I yeah, think. Roland yeah. Joffe of all people. Yeah. It's about the making of a uh, of the nuclear bomb, basically the atomic bomb. And I was always trying to look for a podcast name that basically, you know, showed the contrast in who Steve and I are. Because if you are, you know, you can't see us, but Steve is a is an elderly, distinguished gentleman, <laughs> and I am a young, strapping man. Um, but the problem is, you guys can't see us, and our podcast really has nothing to do with the fact that we are different. In fact. It's it's the uh, it's the opposite. Our podcast is about the fact that considering how different we are, we feel almost exactly the same on good movies. It's we agree way too much. We agree way too much, <laughs> and, and our love of it, and also nobody knows what um, Fat Man Little Boy is, which is a no. bad movie that I don't even recommend you seeing. So why seven should, people saw that movie. When it came why out. should the title of our podcast about movies we love be about a movie we don't even like? It's foolish. <laughs> and then I also realized that you know, movie should have been good. That right, been good. it should have been, but it wasn't. No. And I also realized, you know, that um, a lot of the movies we're talking about, you may not have seen. And that's why we call some of our episodes Hidden Gems. But the truth is, you know, I think that just calling the podcast from now on, the Hidden Gems podcast, movie podcast, makes sense. And even when we're doing um, a movie that everyone knows about, you know, our thoughts are Hidden Gems. Steve and I are society's greatest uh, film critics who get absolutely no recognition from the general public and hundreds of years from now our names will be bandied about with the likes of michelangelo when we are dead and gone that's right yeah this right. is this is this is for posterity folks okay so um let's let's get started so today's episode is basically fantastic directorial debuts um and steve and i i, I kind of had to convince steve to go with some newer movies because <laughs> we've only been talking about old movies and you know Making it just the Fat Man podcast with no little boy. Um, you know, there are a hundred years worth of great movies. Yeah, so, look, we need uh, listeners. So let's okay. go with newer movies that probably nobody's ever seen. Okay. All right. So we're not below selling out. Yeah. So these are two great directorial debuts, both of them by directors who are finding some mainstream success, particularly the one we're about to talk about now. The first movie's Brick. Brendan? Mm-hmm. I really screwed up. Screwed up how? Brick. What? I, I didn't know it was bad, but the pin's on it now. You gotta help me. Slow down now. This isn't good. No. Emily said words I didn't know. Tell me if they catch. Brick? No. Tug? Tug might be a drink. Like milk and vodka. Pin? You know the kingpin. Dope, bro. Right? Big time. What are you gonna do? She asked for my help. I just wanna know if she's okay. So what's first? I'm gonna start shaking things up. Sir, never seen him. And he just hit you. He asked for my lunch money first. Good thing I brown bagged it. You're coming into a certain situation. It's twisted. I'm looking for Emily. He left her. Yeah, I did. You better be sure you want to know what you want to know. Complicated. Everyone's got their thing. In the upper crust, the shady deeds. 
They've got symbols, so they can tell each other that we're getting around. Coffee and pie. Coffee and pie? Oh, my. Keep up with me now. You got a cigarette? I don't smoke. I've seen you smoke. I don't smoke cigarettes. I thought we had orange juice. I'm sorry. Water's fine, ma'am. Thanks. Oh, wait a minute. We have apple juice. It's country style. If I get to the bottom, whatever this is. What do you want? Just to see you sweat. It gets too hot. You got a discipline issue with me? Write me up or suspend me. I see that you're trying to help her. And I don't know anybody who would do that for me. You are dangerous. I set out to know, put her on the spot. And put her in front of the gun. There's not much chance of coming out clean. which is the, I believe, the feature-length directorial debut. I don't think there's any, like, you know, 90-minute straight-to-VHS movie out there by Ryan Johnson, who eventually would go on to direct a Star Wars film, which is a really big deal for anybody, you know, trying to make it in Hollywood. And once again, I have to describe these movies because Steve (laughs) refuses to do it, which stinks, especially when the movie is complicated. But I'm going to simplify this movie. That's because I stink at uh, uh, doing that. I I think that's a crush now. So here's here's what this movie is. I'm going to simplify what it is. This movie is a Raymond Chandler uh, mystery novel that takes place in a California high school in the modern era, basically in either the 90s or the 2000s. I'm not sure. They're not particularly um they're not particularly specific with it although cell phones exist so i guess it would probably be the aughts and all the dialogue is raymond chandler-esque it's hard-boiled it takes itself extremely seriously and the actors there's no hokiness in it not intended at least um there's no wink and a nod there's no wink and a nod there's a couple of they only play it for last one or two times yeah and it's a very serious mystery story Everybody in it is in high school. Um, and I'm going to stay off the bat because I just re- I loved this movie when I first saw it. I just absolutely loved it. Um, but when I rewatched it, I realized something I didn't realize before, which is part of why I like this movie is that it doesn't always work at times. And it truly is greater than the sum of its parts. And what I mean by that is he's working on limited resources, right? He's making... The, he, he potentially doesn't have the money to make a detective Raymond Chandler movie, right? So there's a good chance he made it take place in high school, that he gave it the gimmick, because that's the only way to make that movie believable, because he doesn't have the resources to create... I don't know, when does Raymond Chandler take place? The 30s? 30s, 40s. Yeah, he doesn't yeah. have the, the resources available to him to recreate um, 1930s Los Angeles. Do you think he would have tried to have made a gumshoe movie? So hold on to that, okay? because I have a question about that later yeah. to ask you. Because um, this is actually Steve's choice, um, but we both love Brick. But there are times when the acting, the writing, and the cinematography in Brick aren't totally up to par with, you know completely polished and i like that because it shows that at times he's achieving greatness with what he has and if the whole thing was great and the whole thing seemed high budget and all the actors seemed you know professional hollywood level it would be hard to to say you know wow what a great job he did on limited resources which is often what is so impressive about debuts i know that boogie nights is not um pt anderson's 
filmmaking debut, although it often is considered as such. But it's so polished and so perfect, you don't see the sort of gorilla, I've got a camera and some friends, let's try and make something that's greater than what we are ourselves. And I think Brick has that. I think that's a really good element of Brick. Yeah, I think they they picked a high school that was either abandoned or not, or not in use or something, and they decided to film around that and how cheap can you get, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and there are some good actors in it, by the way. There are some fantastic small roles, just like what this movie is imitating. Let's face it, this is, uh, this is kind of a knockoff. By the way, you said it was um, based on Raymond Chandler. Um, was I wrong? No, no, no. Okay. But um, you could also say it's sort of a Dashiell Hammett. I don't you know, know that. See, this is this is the old Dashiell Hammett. He's he's the um, he's the guy who wrote uh, the Maltese Falcon. Okay, because he sounds like the silent film actor who plays Robin Hood. <laughs> <laughs> Errol Flynn. Yeah, I guess Dashiell oh. Hammett. <laughs> Dashiell Hammett. Yeah, it Dashiell sounds Hammett. like they made his name Dashiell, oh. but it was originally Steve. And like, we got to get dashing in there. <laughs> it is a it is a very cool name. Yeah, it is. It's Dashiell cool. Hammett. Suspiciously cool. Yeah, he he also wrote uh, the Thin Man, which is a fantastic uh, mystery comedy. Just wonderful. Okay, because I'm thinking of I think the Disappearing Man, which is like a horror movie or something. The Disappearing Man. Isn't there like isn't there a movie about a guy the who becomes invisible? Man. Yeah, I'm thinking of the Invisible. Oh man. no 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 it's no no. That. This is nothing like that. This is a terrific sophisticated comedy. But getting back, mm-hmm. um, he's the, the the lead character who is who is played by uh, Joseph Gordon Levitt. I can never get those names in the right order unless it's in front of me. Probably so. one of the most successful child actors transitioning into mainstream Hollywood. Go on. And this is one of these transitions. This is it. This is this a is perfect it. transition. No, this is it. This He's is playing yeah. a teenager, but he has a he has a believability. Yeah. And he was like twenty two when he made it, twenty two or yeah. twenty three. This uh, is the movie that did it for him. Yeah. This is he he had made a few indies where he was playing edgy roles that are wildly that are they're well regarded. Yeah. But this is the movie. This is the movie that put him on the map as an adult actor. He hasn't had nearly as many successes as he deserved. This okay. guy is 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 people are sleeping on him. He has an incredible range. I saw him in in Hersher. I, I I don't know that one. It, it's it's a movie where he plays a redneck, a total violent redneck, and he's completely opposite of anything he's, he's ever done. And he is one hundred percent scary and convincing. Well, now that we're on him, let's talk about that character for a second because this yep. is the important thing. Joseph Gordon-Levitt plays what is essentially the role of the detective, and what he is once again is a superhero in his own way, a superhero in his ability to think, to discern, to critically think. And then also, he, he's basically what I would have liked, what, what I li- would have liked to have seen myself in as a high schooler. When I was in high school, that type of archetype as of the loner who doesn't like anyone but is smarter than everybody else. Super competent. Super competent. Can read everybody. Yeah. Not afraid to take an ass kicking but still wins the fight. Yes, yes. I mean, he is what I wanted to be in high school and didn't achieve and as a result <laughs> just wasn't liked. <laughs> uh, subsequently, he... he, he this kind of person does not exist. No. Which is why you get detective movies. What I was saying before, I wanted to make a distinction. He is not like Sam Spade, although he actually, they rip off a line from the Maltese Falcon. Okay. He's less like Sam Spade, who was hard and cruel. He's more like Philip Marlowe, the guy who wants to do a good job, gets the crap beat out of him, is not cruel, wants to see things work out right. Mm-hmm. He, he's more, both, both detectives are incredibly sharp. But Sam Spade has, has ice water in his veins, and that's not true. And in this character, he's very sympathetic towards sympathetic people. 
but he, you know, he, he leans on people. There's this terrific um, scene near a dumpster in the, behind the schools um, where he, he um, wants to get some information out of this minor character named Dode. Dode is this, is this stoner guy. He's a junkie, yeah. Yeah, and there's this terrific scene where uh, the, the stoners are making a lot of... Uh, one, one of the stoners are sipping through a straw just to be annoying, and the shot is perfect. The shot, you don't see... Um, Brendan, who is played by uh, Levitt, Gordon yeah. Levitt, he, he just, you see a hand come out, take the straw away, and there's a pause. And then he returns it, knotted up. Yeah, you only <laughs> see his hand. That is a perfect attitude. He knows this will work. He knows he's not going to get any brush back. Yeah. You know? He's courageous. I mean, <clears throat> he's extremely <throat> a courageous character and a noble yes. one as well. He's yeah. mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So the plot of the movie is this. I'm going to sum it up as best I can. He has an ex-girlfriend who is falling with the wrong crowd, and then I'm just going to tell you straight off the bat, is murdered. And he decides to infiltrate a drug-dealing ring in his town in order to bring down the people he believes is responsible for her murder. That is the plot of the movie. So, But at the same time, he takes enormous risks to do this. Um, In no way is he trying to get something for himself. This isn't a movie where, you know, they kidnapped his his girlfriend or his wife, and they said, you know, you've got this amount of time to do X, Y, and Z. No, he's doing this purely for justice. And what you also get the sense of, and something I love about this movie, he's done this before. He has done this before at great cost to himself, and he's basically retired from the bringing people to justice game. He's a high schooler, and, <laughs> and he, all, he's already world weary. Yeah, exactly. And when he just <laughs> and he did not. There, there's questions to whether he conducted himself honorably. That's right. That's right. And maybe and and now you get a sense that he, he has sold learned. some people out. Yeah, and he sold yeah he some ratted he ratted uh, a guy who was interested he thought was interested in his girlfriend. Well, worse than that, a guy he felt was getting his girlfriend hooked on drugs. So basically, he made this guy think that they were going to start a drug dealing operation together, and then he ratted him out. And he did it to basically help his girlfriend, who he believed was becoming a junkie as a result of this other guy. He ratted he rats him out to the vice principal, uh, played by Shaft. The, that's right, Richard <laughs> Roundtree. Um, uh, and, and he takes the place of, of, of the cops. Now, this is straight out of Maltese Falcon. It's fantastic. I mean, they, they almost lift word for word um, an interrogation between in the vice principal's office. It's almost the same thing as when uh, Sam Spade is in with the DA. Yeah. And it, it's just, it's, it's terrific. You know, it oh, occurred by to way, me. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I have to cut you off here. Uh-huh. Making him the assistant vice principal rather than the principal is genius because whenever you want an unsympathetic... Um, uh, authority figure. You don't make them the top. You don't make them the president. You make them the vice president. You mo- you don't make them the district attorney. You make them the assistant of district attorney. We always look at those guys as if they got a knife behind their back, and they're only and they're one death closer to the job they really want to have. There's a there's this issue of you know ambition rather than wanting to get the job done. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. uh, it occurred to me that the only reason this dialogue works, okay, in a high school. If he had tried to make this movie using, you know, uh, characters in their appropriate age, you know, 20s, 30s, 40s, it might not have worked for today's sensibility to use this dialogue. The only reason it works in a high school is because high school is all about using the latest, uh, you know, catchphrases, lingo, and words. I mean, if I walk into a high school, I'll barely be able to understand what the hell they're talking about. And that's why this movie, the, the, the tough, guy, tough Guy Dialogue... Uh, you know, filled mm-hmm. with euphemisms, you know, uh, 
it's the only reason it works. You know, this could be a series of um, you know uh, buzzwords that are the latest thing. When you watched it again, did you watch it with subtitles on? Because I, I did. did. I yeah, absolutely did because I missed so much. This patter is very fast. It's and extremely it's fast. They yes. do not make any concessions to make sure you heard it. Yes, that I mean that's really important because I think it really for anyone who who is going to watch this, um, I really think you would do yourself a favor by turning on the subtitles, not so that you can understand it better, but so that you can experience the richness of the text more fully. I would say the, the first time you read it, don't. The first time, time you, you watch, watch it, it, don't. Sure, yeah. All, like like almost every great movie, you haven't watched it until you watch it twice. That's absolutely Because right. now you know the implications of the, of, the, of the ending and where it builds. The second time you see it, turn on the turn on the uh, uh, closed caption. You do yourself a favor, and you're absolutely right about the uh, the cleverness of the dialogue. It's 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 terrific. So here's, but now that you brought it up about older actors, this is what I wanted to ask you, because I feel that there are parts of this movie that are just downright not at the professional level. Um, do you think it's a better movie if he has all the resources available to him and he makes it with 40-year-olds in Los Angeles as a period piece and he ditches the high school part? Wouldn't be as fun. You don't think it would be as... I saw the gimmick. I don't think you're saying the fun. gimmick is essential because I think... Yeah. You know, I never want to say a movie is a good movie because it has a gimmick. Mm-hmm. And I think it would be a disservice to this movie to actually say, you know, the story told in this is incredibly dense, complex, and really well told. And I think it would be a good movie even if they completely ditched the high school gimmick. The question is, which would be the better movie? Or assume he had the best high school actors in the world, you know, the top of the top. He had all the money in the world, and he remade it. Is it a better movie? I, I don't think so. There's, there's something to be said for uh, hunger in a filmmaker. Okay. You know? Yeah. I, I think it was... Uh, 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 Siskel or Ebert I think it was Roger Ebert who said the difference between Terminator and Terminator 2 yeah. is the difference between a very hungry James Cameron and a Cameron who is has been saturated with, with technology yeah you know? I, I think that's totally right and you know a good comparison for this is um, Damien Chazelle's Whiplash which is a great movie it's his debut but it's also so slick and pristine I don't see the guy who doesn't have a lot of resources working above what he has. And that's what I see in Brick and why I like it so much in some ways, even though I think it's a fantastic script, is that the quality of the acting and filmmaking doesn't always rise to meet the quality of his writing, but other times it does. And when it does, he's working with, he, he's achieving so much more than, what he, than the tools he has. You know, if you only give me a potato and salt, the chances are I'm not going to make the best dish. But what if I do? I mean, that's really impressive than somebody who's got, you know, all the ingredients available to them at the table. It's exciting. And it's hard to make a movie with such a structured um, screenplay that exciting that, uh, you know, there, there couldn't have been very much ad-libbing yeah. because the dialogue is so, um, you know, perfectly tuned, yeah. you know, that uh, I'm sure that the director said, you can't, you can't ad-lib. You must memorize these to the, to the comma, yeah, you and, you, and there's some great and yet side it's, characters. It's really exciting. Yeah, and there are great. So, so basically, he has this sidekick, his ops guy, which means operations. The brain. The brain. The brain. He's it's the a, only teenager. I looked up. He's the only teenager in with a major cast. And he in, looks in, like a te- he looks like a teenager too. Yes, but he's. You get the sense he's an outcast of some sort who Brendan values, and it's crazy because this kid is willing to. So he's a weirdo. Basically, he sits behind. Uh, the school at lunch. He um, 
he, you know, he does the, the classic Rubik cube thing. What's that thing called? The cube that you're trying to get yeah, a, Rubik's color, a Rubik's cube, yeah. you know, to show that he's smart. Yeah. Um, but also you get the sense that he has difficulty with people and not because he's like Brendan where he doesn't like people. I think he would very much like to be liked, yeah. but I think he's borderline Asperger's, right? He just doesn't fit in. But he, but because Brendan's Bre- the only one who relates to and him. And because Brendan yeah. only relates to him, but values him, this kid brain puts his entire life on pause and works around the <laughs> clock. He doesn't sleep and neither does Brendan. He doesn't sleep and he does all this sort of private investigator work with Brendan. It's a really cool little character and I love it. Like this character reminds me of Sam Spade's secretary. Okay. Takes care of you know takes care of um my so some um, supporting characters Laura who's a really important character. He asks her to basically, you know, handle Laura or or at different points, avoid Laura, manage her, get get us information. It's the same thing that uh, Sam Spade's secretary does. And they're similarly, you know, treated with kind of a taking taking advantage of the character, but also uh, appreciating the character. You know, yeah, they and, really and speaking of good side characters, there's a character called the pin, which means kingpin in which they do some really uh, on-the-nose Godfather-style lighting and comparisons in this movie. I mean, at one point, they literally light him like Marlon Brando in the, in the, uh, in the first scene of The Godfather, as well as the scene where he finds that, his, that Sonny has been killed. He's looking on the morgue. Spoiler alert, you know, but if you haven't seen The Godfather by now, you should go kill yourself. Yeah, um, <laughs> you're probably not listening to this podcast. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, so um, my question is, first of all, do you like that character, the character of the pin? Do you think he works? A high schooler who is essentially an old world mob boss. Now, he is about, the character is meant to be about seven or eight years older than everybody else. He's out of high school. Great, 28. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Seriously. And, and that's actually Lucas Haas was, I think, one of the I was going to say, by the way, the guy who plays him is one of my all-time, he's, in, he's not one of my all-time favorite actors, but he's in one of my all-time favorite movies, which is Witness, Witness. which, Steve, you put me on to. Yes. So, but anyways, keep going. That, that, that kid... You know the the the, the uh, those those brown what, eyes yeah. are incredible. But one, anyway, one important thing to mention: he has a what is the foot called? He has a monster. He has a deformed foot. Yeah, and he wears this gigantic shoe. Yeah, and I don't um, know if that means your foot's really to... big or your foot's really small, though. I'm not sure. But he he has a deformity in his foot, and he walks with a limp, and he wears all black, and he sometimes wears like a cape almost. And he's a very <laughs> it is a, it is a it is yeah. a cape. It is amazing. They've got this guy, and it's preposterous. It's preposterous, it's absolutely. Right. And he's got a cane and a cape. He yeah. looks like something out of a, a you know, Jack the Ripper. Yeah. So do you like him? Do you think he works? I think the movie would be less without him. Okay, because he's got a great scene where he's sitting on the beach with Brendan. Brendan has earned his trust. Brendan is trying to take this guy down, and they do this very classic thing in movies, which I really like, which is the really smart guy who wants to infiltrate. He gets close by the top to the top man by showing him how smart he is. You know, and the mm-hmm. top man first is distrustful of him, but then says... You know, I, I'm not usually surrounded by people this smart because I'm usually only surrounded by hired muscle. So this guy would make a good consigliere to me. Let me bring him in, right? But anyway, so there's a great scene when he's finally earned this guy's trust and they're sitting on the beach. And I'm, I'm not sure what this scene means. And the guy, the kingpin, who at this point has only acted like an 85-year-old, you know, Italian <laughs> godfather, says to Brendan, you ever read Tolkien? And Brendan goes, what? And he goes, you know, the Hobbit books. You ever read them? And he goes, yeah. yeah. And he goes, <laughs> Because I really like the way they describe things. Makes you want to be there. What did this mean? Is he talking about his own script? 
Like, what? what is the point of this? Please tell me. I loved it. but I'm. Or were they just trying to make him seem like a kid? You know, um, when I watched this again, yeah. um, I didn't remember that scene from the beginning. And I, I don't know why I brushed it off, but that really stuck to me the second time. You know? So how did you interpret it? It, it, didn't advance the, it didn't advance the plot at all. Not at all. At all. You know, th- this movie borrows heavily, not just from... Maltese Falcon and The Big Sleep, but it also borrows from a much more recent movie, Miller's Crossing. Okay. Borrows heavily from that. I love Miller's Crossing, but I'm trying to see the connection. Well, I think what it is is... Because, oh, he is he, like Tom Hagen. He's, he's like Tom Hagen, and, and the pin is more like the Albert Finney character, you know, who is not as smart as, you know, the, the lead detective... But he recognizes how smart he is. Right, correct. You know? correct. Now, the pin is I, this is a pretty smart guy. I think the best comparison but, are the two characters, though, of Brendan and Tom Hagen. And if you oh, haven't yeah. seen those crossing, Tom Hagen is an incredibly sharp, intelligent guy with principles who doesn't tell everybody his principles. His motives are often unclear to everybody else but himself. And he's also constantly getting his ass kicked, <laughs> but he's courageous and not afraid to get his ass kicked. It's, they, I, I, won't, I just saw Miller's Crossing like this week, and, and, and at one point, uh, these thugs are, are yeah. beating, beating the hell out of him because of a, of a gambling debt. And he says, hey, uh, they just want you to know, uh, no hard feelings. Right. He <laughs> said, I know that. Go ahead, continue beating me up. You yeah, know? yeah and, and, and also, these two characters are misanthropic in many regards. I mean, they just... They don't like people. Uh, yeah. It's it's you know I love the the show the radio show Gunsmoke, and there's a very similar the main character of Gunsmoke the Marshal Matt Dillon is very similar and there's you know even though this thing was made in the 40s right there's a great moment where at the end of an episode uh, Matt Dillon the Marshal has just been dealing with these unruly townspeople who are you know some guy has murdered some other guy and some other guy murdered some other guy to get back for it and at the end of the episode uh, Matt Dillon's sidekick Chester goes you know what's the matter there Marshal and he goes I don't know Chester just sometimes people and the whole episode <laughs> ends right there and that, and they all all these types of the point is these archetypes of these really intelligent guys something comes with their intelligent intelligence which is a deep disappointment with their fellow man it's like one of the reasons they can read people so well is they assume the corruption worst. yeah and and that is the most reliable way to read somebody yeah. and nothing is more um um bears that out than the very ending with um are we giving it away then fatale laura Okay, I don't. Uh, I don't, know I don't want to. I, I'm I don't not going to give that away because it's a mystery. I kind of did get away, but uh, that's it. But there, there, it, no, it's a very get... complex exposure. Yeah. But it, it's very similar to the last conversation that uh, Sam Spade has with um, uh, Miss O'Shaughnessy. Okay, so I've in, never read any of these books. The, the, just, uh, the I don't know Falcon. how to read. Yes, yeah. why I do a movie podcast. Yeah. Um, but uh, <laughs> but but it's it's yeah. that it's that um, absolutely cynical, but a mixture of uh, cynicism and no, and ethics. Right, you know? of course, absolutely. And these guys are not jaded without reason, without cause. Yeah. So the reason I asked you about the pin, because he's a ridiculous character, I actually like the pin. Uh-huh. I think that he brings some levity to the whole thing, even though he's not a comedic character, but he really drives home the ridiculousness of this mystery taking place in high school and some yeah. of these character archetypes being, you know, kids, basically. The only humorous part in the movie is when... Um, 
you know, when they're trying to make it, when the pin's trying to make a deal with yeah. uh, Brendan, yeah. they go up to the uh They the go up to the living room, room yes, and his mother room. is, like, serving him <laughs> cornflakes and apple juice. So the kingpin lives with his mother. And I have a take on that. Because <laughs> all this criminal activity is openly happening in the kingpin's house. And I think the joke... On first viewing, I read it as she has no idea what's going on. On second viewing, I decided to read it as the opposite. He is paying the bills on that house. He is paying the mortgage. She knows exactly what is happening, and she is playing the part to perfection of you know all these henchmen constantly at her house, and she is this little old lady who has no idea what's going on. I have decided to believe that she knows exactly what is going on. The two of them are in on it together, and she's playing a role in the house. Here's my take. Okay. It's the Toy Story scenario. <laughs> she doesn't know if the toys are alive? Right. You know how the toys, the, the yeah. toys all fall down and yeah. act like they're toys, yeah. you know? Yeah. She doesn't see what's very evident in, you know, I prefer to think she's sinister. I prefer it that way. <laughs> um, so the reason I asked you about the Kingpin was because the Kingpin's second-in-command is the muscle. His name is Tug. He's this big, beefy dude. He only wears a wife beater and a skull cap. And I have problems with Tug as a character. I have problems with the acting job that the guy did. And I have problems with the simplicity of the character. Basically, he's dumb muscle. And he's upset that he's dumb muscle. But he's treated like dumb muscle. And I'm just not sure the character is interesting or well acted. And he is really, at the end of the day, the villain of the movie. Um, He is the one that drives all the drama in a lot of ways um, through his... You know, I'm just kind of not interested in the beefy meathead idiot. And I think that's what he is. And in a movie populated by smart people, to have such a dumb person um, drive so much of the story, I found annoying. I, di- I disagree with okay. you. I don't. I, I think a, a character like this is very necessary. I hate to go back to reference, but this is like uh, Philip Marlowe in the in the movie. I think it's called Murder My Sweet with Dick <laughs> Powell. With 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 a yeah, really. Uh, it, it was remade with Robert Mitchum in the seventies. Clearly sold times. at a bus stop. <laughs> But uh, that that movie, uh, you had this big lug. It's a little different because he had a kind of a heart of gold. But uh, yeah, I think you have to have this this non thinking muscle as as a contrast. Okay. I, th- I think you really do, and and I think he's, he's vital. I didn't have a problem with him. In fact, I do like a few scenes. He uh, Brendan tries to get Tug's attention. Um, he doesn't know Tug from Adam. But he lets it known that he wants a meeting with the pin. He's trying and to the infiltrate pin the organization. Right. He wants a meeting. Yeah. And 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 pin just beats the hell out of him. Keeps beating the hell out of him. And when no tug is beating the hell out of him. Right. In tug front of the pin. No, no, no. This is, I think this is in the parking lot. The uh, pin's not beating up. No, no, no. Tug is beating uh, the hell out of Brendan yes. in in the school parking yes, lot, and yes. he keeps taking it and keeps taking. It, keeps coming back for more. Finally, he lets him in his car. He says, I want to, uh, uh, Brendan says, I want to see a pin. And Tug says, well, I guess you do. And <laughs> I really like that line because it's, it can, he, he, he understands and respects the toughness. Yeah. It's the recognition. He may not be a great yeah. fighter, but he yeah. recognizes the toughness. It's also the recognition like, hey, you know what? Beating this guy up anymore isn't going to do anything. Yeah. Like he's going <laughs> to see the pin. Just yeah. hurting my wrist. Yeah, he's going <laughs> to he's gonna find a way to see this guy. Um, yeah. There are there are some problems with the character and, and Brendan's reaction to it when he finds out how the plot plays out. And I won't yeah. give it away. It, it basically, it's difficult yeah. to see so many smart people have such a difficult time managing such a meathead. 
You know, we like to think that if you're smart, you can outplay mm-hmm. the bad guy. But my issue is everybody in this movie is really smart except for Tug. And yet they all are basically at his mercy in many ways. And even at the end, you find out maybe brute strength is all that matters. Um, I don't know. And, and I don't think the actor particularly played the part well. And I'm not sure he could have because the writing is so that's such a one dimensional character. I, I do. I do like the character. Uh, the kid has kind of a baby face, yeah. You know, it's, and it's only his biceps shown yeah. through the uh, you know the tank top t shirt yeah. that gives him any credibility because it's a little on the short side. He um, he's boxy. Yeah, yeah. I, I didn't have a problem with him though, and I think he was. I think that kind of character is definitely necessary. You've got to have dumb muscle. Oh, and by the way, there's a hilarious gag in this movie. There is another one if you didn't notice it, but I'm sure you did, which is. Um, Tug has his own henchman and the pin has his own henchman and all of Tug's henchmen wear white beaters, yes. <laughs> you know, the white tank top and, and all the, the other ones are goth and all the other ones are wearing all black suits. Like yeah. they're, you know, they're in the Godfather movie, but you know, it's just by the way, uh, another reference to Miller's crossing when they go down to the basement, yeah. they have their powwows in the basement away from mom's prying eyes. And you have both sides of that hall narrow as it is lined with men. And I remember that scene from Miller's crossing where uh, Tom goes to, to, to meet right. uh, the Albert Finney, and they're all lined up. And you they're know? all dressed like Albert Finney, basically. Yes. So uh, here's something I want to talk about um, in terms of this is Ryan Johnson's directorial debut. It puts him on the map. He's a very successful director now. He has made since then The Brothers Bloom, which I think is a movie that suffers from a terrible casting mistake, which is the roles ought to be reversed between Mark Ruffalo and Adrian Brody um, because of how those characters look as kids i don't know if you've ever seen that movie the brothers bloom doesn't work for me it just doesn't work um some people love it i don't i was very disappointed yeah. i was so looking forward to this because this was another it it was another kind of a, a caper comedy kind of referencing back in the 40s you know two, two con men brothers trying to dupe an heiress uh it was so disappointing. It just doesn't I didn't work. see any of the cleverness. No, at no. all. It just does. It's too lighthearted. It doesn't mm. make sense a lot of the times. It just. It's too Wes Anderson ish. It's like he tried to become Wes Anderson for one movie, and it is not his style. Um, before I get to one of these movies, I'm going to jump forward a movie. He made another movie called Knives Out, which is very well regarded, which I didn't like. I just found Knives Out to be a bore, and I think we both agree on this. The main character the is main the most character. boring character in the movie. You don't do that. You don't put. A dull character at the center. By the way, yeah. the actress who plays her, I forget what her name was. Uh, um, Armas or something, I don't remember. She has such an, I don't know, an innate ability to connect with the audience. She's so charming that the defect in the writing yeah. doesn't harm her. Right, that's she right. She carries this movie yeah. despite having, a, she's like a completely angelic, She's the opposite perfect. of Brendan. She doesn't have wits. She only gains them by the end of the movie. She's, and and she, she's... You know, she doesn't have that cynicism. She yeah. assumes that everybody is is help. You know, certain people are helping her when they when they're not. We like to see people who are in control of a situation and mm-hmm. doing something well, not people who constantly feel like they're floundering and only just by the skin of their teeth make it in the end. Which is what I felt she was in Knives Out. Yeah. But Knives Out's another that was mystery. a terrible lead character. To, yeah, to, to Knives Out's so. a really well regarded mystery movie that I don't think holds a candle to brick. Now I'm going to jump back a movie. I personally believe, and it's so shocking because the Brothers Bloom, Knives Out, and Brick are you know, relatively low-budget features. I really believe um, that Ryan Johnson made the second best Star Wars movie ever made. I think The Last Jedi, whether or not you liked it, it's one thing. I think it's impossible to look at the filmmaking. Forget the story and the script because he, he was inherited something that was inherently trash. 
Um, you know, the, the new Star Wars franchise was one of the most cynically told stories I've ever seen. You know, the, it, bringing back the Empire without any explanation for how it came back. And uh, he was given that movie, and he directed the hell out of it. It is such a masterfully directed, big-budget movie. And I was really shocked he was able to do that, never having been given a feature like that before. And a lot of these young guys, the Black Panther director, and I think there's more, a lot of these young guys are killing it when you give them a ton of money, which is really surprising. Some of these movies, I, I, maybe they're just uh, too big to fail, you know? Kenneth Branagh was known for small Shakespearean adaptations. Then they hire him to do, they hire him to do mammoth movies like The Beauty and the Beast. And uh, he, he also did... Um, uh, one of the Thor, one, one of oh, the Marvel. Did he do a, yeah, I think, I think he, he did, did do the first two Thor movies. The first one's not bad, and I hate Marvel movies. Uh-huh. But the first Thor movie's fairly decent. I don't know if he directed that. Uh, I think he did, not. Steve. I think yeah. I think um, Kenneth Branagh directed the yeah. first Thor movie. So I get the feeling that there's so much input, it's almost impossible for these movies to fail. Our loyal uh, and, listeners uh, can let us know if we're wrong on the Kenneth Branagh <laughs> thing, by the way. But uh, it's not their specialty. This movie was not uh, Ryan Johnson's specialty. Talking about Star Wars, the Star Wars, yeah. and I didn't like the movie at all. Not, but you couldn't, you not, couldn't even uh, admit it that it was well crafted. Just forget, forget. Just, just I can barely remember anything uh, about that movie, and what I resented about the movie, uh, um, despite the, the the current Me Too fashionableness of undercutting all male characters in deference oh, to female geez. characters. Don't get me mm-hmm. started. Uh, but there's also there's, there's a segment that takes place in like a Monte Carlo, um, yeah, it's, and that completely pulled me out of the science fiction. Yeah, I look, felt I was back on Earth twenty. There are problems 20. with the story of that movie, but at the end of the day, and I'm going to probably get, not all. In a way, you are yeah. right; they are hampered, and I think it's partly Kathleen Kennedy and her. Was well, J.J. Abrams' politics? J.J. Abrams is a horrible hack, and he I is absolutely not a horrible hack. You're to, totally wrong to, on that. We need to get rid of him. And whatever, if, you, if, if we want conflict, there it is. Whatever the Los Angeles <laughs> equivalent, whatever the Hollywood equivalent of what the Italians did to Benito Mussolini is, we need to do that. That's what that is. What we need to get J.J. Abrams. He has ruined Star Trek, which was. Which, you know, I love Star Trek, and he just completely ruined that The franchise. two best Star Trek movies were the J.J. Abrams. Awful. That's, Fantastic. Oh, my God. Just shoot absolutely wonderful. Anyway, right, so, but whatever you say about, whatever you don't like about the story of The Last Jedi, and here's where I get in my, this is where people really become enraged at me. Me liking The Last Jedi has nothing to do with the fact it is the second best directed Star Wars movie. It just is. How could you watch Return of the Jedi, A New Hope, or any of the prequels, and then say, or even The Force Awakens or the, the last one, which was terrible, and say that any of them are directed better than The Last Jedi. I thought The Force Awakens was, was better directed. Barf. Um, well, a- any movie that uses, uh, oh, uh, they're, you know, everybody at the end, they're, they're all trapped, right, in that, in that cave-like yeah. place. Oh, let's use a backdoor. What are you talking about? <laughs> Great but that's not directing; that's storytelling. <laughs> directing is like basically when that I ship was bored tearless by that movie. When that ship goes into the other ship and it's silent for the explosion, that's directing. That didn't make any sense because she should have thought it. <laughs> she could have saved countless lives if she had thought about that earlier. That's, that's a storytelling. That's, that's not... a defect in the storytelling. She should have thought about that. But if she had thought directing. about that one hour earlier, she'd have saved. Thousands of lies. We're, we, we're, you're criticizing the story. I'm praising the directing, the pure visual sound. You know, the 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 the, the part that makes movies not novels. The only thing that I will do is 
Uh, well, when you're talking about a Star Wars movie, you're going to have tons of visual accomplishments, even in the lousy ones. Mm-hmm. There's going to be a moment of, you know, uh, I forgot appreciation. A mo- I forgot a movie, Steve. What's that? A great one. His second best movie. What's that? It's um, Looper with Bruce Willis oh, right. and Joseph Gordon-Levitt. Looper is a great little movie. Tell me. Not a great little movie. Come on. <laughs> Why? Yeah, I don't think it's very memorable. In um, Force Place... Again, you, you you can get, you can say how well directed it was all you want, but five foot two inch <laughs> Joseph Gordon-Levitt does not look like a young version of Bruce Willis. You okay, look just it's, like him. It's insane. Well, to be fair, I am not old enough to have seen a young Bruce Willis. By the way, I'm sure he's not five foot two, but you know what I'm talking. Yeah, about. Yeah, no, no. For me, it's fine. I, um, so here's all right. So here's the real question because even though there are Ryan Johnson movies I really like post. Um, brick is ryan johnson living up to his potential Has no he, because there's no. none of the movies that i've seen that uh I've, I've been i've never been anything but disappointed in everything he's made since you know brick. what i think over the arc of his career i agree with you i think he's mm. missing that that other movie that really solidifies him as a major major um talent and i think you know nobody saw this movie i think damien chazelle um, did that, and it wasn't with La La Land, which I despise. La La Land is one of the very few movies I will ever have a moral objection with. Steve, you morally object to movies all the time. I almost never do. I think La La Land is pure garbage, and quite frankly, a, almost a sinister film. I don't think it's pure garbage, but I got a lot of right, problems. It's, it's with well La La made, Land. but I got, I got a, lot a lot of problems, problems with it. With it yeah. It's well made, of course. He's talented, but I got a lot of problems. With it. But for, is it called First Man? What's the one, the Neil Armstrong movie? First Man. Yeah. First Man's fantastic. Um, First Man is the movie that I think solidifies um, his talent. Whiplash. His talent. Yeah. yeah. And it has one of the, by the way, I know we're going off topic, but First Man has one of the greatest premises I've ever heard for a movie or historical fiction. The thing I love about historical fiction is that what it does is if you get the facts right, you get to ascribe motive. And oftentimes we don't know the motives of historical figures. So we take the facts and we were a fictional novel, which you should not cite in a paper, but you get to say, you know what? I'm presenting this as possibly the theory of what really happened in terms of the why and the theory of first man is that this man went to the moon so he could cry in private over the death of his daughter he <laughs> it, ref- it took getting that far yeah, away from <laughs> yeah he refused to cry in front of anyone so he went to the moon i mean he's genius because because basically there's a mystery of uh, um neil armstrong he went to this crater on the moon and shut off radioactivity for like 25 minutes and nobody knows what he did and what damien chazelle says he did is he is he cried <laughs> you know, he cried in his helmet on the moon so nobody would see it that's just amazing i don't think that's why he was crying i don't think that's what they're suggesting that's why the he was whole crying point of the movie. i think he was crying because of of the absolute beauty and no awe he was crying for sorry he threw his daughter's he, necklace in the crater he, I, I think it, it's kind of very, very, uh, uh, large, a kind of large concept where he not only does he see the beauty of Earth and, and before him, mm-hmm. uh, the moon. I don't want to get too artsy fartsy here, but I think, I think that allowed him to see, you know, how much he deeply no, you appreciated got it all his daughter. Wrong. You got it all wrong. After the Wouldn't death of his daughter, time. everyone's coming up to him trying to get him to cry. Like, literally, every scene in that movie is some guy being like, hey, you know, Neil, if you're not all right, you can talk to me, or blah, blah, blah. And every scene, Neil's like, what do you mean I'm not all right? Like, all this guy wants to do is find a private place to cry, because everyone's trying to get him to cry in front of them. That's all. It's a genius theory for historical fiction. Um, so, anyways, closing thoughts on Brick. Um, great movie. Great script. Definitely 
watch it twice, one time without it, uh, without the subtitles, another time with the closed captioning. And, you know, this is a movie that shows if you have, if you, if you write something and you take it as seriously as possible and you write something that can be filmed with the resources available to you and you tell everybody involved, treat this seriously, treat this like we're making it what it's supposed to be despite the gimmick, you can succeed. Yeah. This movie was as well directed as it was written, and I appreciate that. Um, qualms. Okay. Okay. Ahead. This movie is a, uh, it borrows too much. Okay, so I, I think it, I think it, it it borrows too heavily from Miller's Crossing and from, uh, you know, the Maltese Falcon and and uh, the Big Sleep. Uh, it, there's something synthetic. There's a synthetic feel to it. The actors do a terrific job. It, it didn't it didn't degenerate into Bugsy Malone. I don't know if you're familiar with this Alan Parker's first movie. Bugsy Is that Malone, the, one with the kids. Yeah, I've it's never the seen kids it. Some playing gangsters. It. Yeah. yeah, and it did help solidify. Got him a directing deal that got him. Uh, That's important that you mention that. But keep yes. going. It's not like that. I'm not saying that these these most of these kids weren't completely authentic. Some of them were startlingly authentic. One femme fatale. I, I do did want to uh, mention. I think her name is uh, the actress Megan Good. She plays. Kara, I she's mean, really good is, in it, and she's she, not a good actress, and she's really good in this. Yeah, she she turns on a dime in front of one person. She's very vulnerable, and as soon mm -hmm. as the, the, the kid they leaves... They call her a drama vamp. Drama vamp. It's like drama vampire, I guess. Well, that's... that's um you know that that's uh, the 21st century version of a of a uh, uh, of a femme fatale. Yeah, yeah, yeah. These these small little performances are terrific, but there is some, like I said, there, there's this uh, you know faux film noir, absolutely that you know I'm that I think diminishes it a little bit. Well, I have the exact it was same incredibly problem. enjoyable. I have the exact same problem with the movies that sometimes it doesn't feel natural. Yeah, but I think. So it's weird. This movie holds up. It absolutely holds up. You will be entertained if you yeah. watch this movie. It is a movie like that is made to be good. Yes. And yet I actually feel this is a movie he made to get noticed to make another movie. I don't think this was his, if I only live, you know, so long and get to make one movie, this is the movie I want to make. I think uh -huh. this is a movie that says, let me make this so people see what I can do so I get more opportunities to make movies. I, I think that's a really good theory. And I think that's and probably I, I kinda, why he's, show, he's showing, yeah. look at all the different things I can do. It doesn't matter if they potentially hurt the film right. or make it um, incoherent. Mm -hmm. You see what I know. Mm -hmm. Like Miller's Cry, all the references. Because, you know, people in LA love that stuff. Oh, look at this kid referencing my movie. Let me help him out. <laughs> you know. Yes. All right. So let's move on to our second uh, directorial debut. This one came out not long ago. Um, I think it came out in 2016. It is by the filmmaker Robert Eggers. It is called The Witch. What went we out into this wilderness to find? Leaving our country, kindred, our father's houses. For what? For the kingdom of God. Let us pray.
curse this family. a witch story and what it is i think it actually does take place in salem am i wrong it take, you know it, what i'm not sure it takes place in the 17th century yes um the pilgrims i have, think it's in massachusetts though. Yeah, yeah, yeah the pilgrims have come to america and it starts off where there is this one family of pilgrims and they are accusing the town of not being puritan enough right this town doesn't meet their moral uh, their, their rigorous religious moral standards of living. And basically, the town shuns them. The town says, you got to get out of here, man. You're, you guys are a bad vibe. Like, you're, you know, you're killing the buzz, you know, in our, in our Puritan community. You guys are too intense. Just, I, think they, I think they were his, his uh, evil conceit. I think they refer to him. His, his moral standard for the town is the referred father, to as the father. Yeah, the father. I'm sorry, you're right. The father. The father refers to, um, you know, the, or, or rather the people who are judging him say that he is indulging in like some evil conceit yeah. like he, his moral standards are a form of conceit this is like when you tell your bosses you don't like the job they do and they're like get out of here <laughs> <laughs> so yeah so this guy basically starts off he moves his family um into the woods he has a teenage daughter who is the main character of the film he has a set of twins who uh, a boy and a girl i think they're probably like eight or nine years old he's got another little boy who i think is the second oldest maybe 11 or 12 maybe around that age and then they have an infant and i'm going to give something away because i'm not giving anything away and it's important that you understand this movie is not a mystery okay they move to the woods and the eldest daughter played by i think her name's like annabeth joy or something i got anya taylor joy thank you i just Um, looked that up i forgot myself she's taking care of the infant baby and she's playing games with them where she's like putting her hands over her eyes and going, peekaboo, peekaboo. I mean, the infant is like right underneath her. And then she puts her hands over her eyes one more time. And when she, and when she takes them off her eyes, the infant is gone. The infant's name is Samuel, I believe. He's gone. He has disappeared. And there is nothing around her for miles. Like how this baby disappeared, like it vanished. And what you find out is the baby was stolen by a witch. <laughs> a real life witch. This is not a mystery. They don't take a lot of time getting to it. And one of the creepiest things you will ever see, you see a witch running through the woods, holding this baby and eventually cooking it to make an oil for her broom. Now, one thing that really helps the viewing of this movie, either before or after, is if um, is if you basically research witches just a little bit, because there's a ton of witch folklore in this movie. Um, but yeah, so the movie is basically about... This girl's family is being tormented by witches who live in the woods, and eventually it breeds uh, distrust amongst the family. And uh, you know, and it's a horror movie. It's a horror movie about witches. The witches are real, and they're tormenting this family that is living in the woods. Now, I think it's almost impossible to talk about this movie 
without basically saying whether or not it has subtext. And I think it's a really, if you want to make the really easy generalization that this movie is all about politics and subtext, and it's about religious oppression and, and gender oppression and all that, I think you might, the problem is I haven't heard Robert Eggers, the filmmaker, talk about what this movie is about, but I really prefer to think that this movie is non-political and that it is in fact a horror movie about witches. This may surprise you as you, you've often accused me of seeing politics right. and everything. I agree. Good. All right. Thank God. So we don't have to I, argue and there's about a, that. There's a very, uh, kind of a specific reason, I, I guess. Um, I think the title card for The Witch at the very beginning says it's a New England folktale. Right. It doesn't say it's a pilgrim's folktale. Yeah. Because I don't think it is. Okay. I think it's a witch's folktale. Yeah, I think right. it's a folktale that witches, say, have, yeah. have invented and spread them out. Yeah. I don't think that, it, you know, uh, it's, it's for the pilgrims. Uh, so the thing the, about the this movie, the thing about this movie is it's much like Brick in that he takes it entirely seriously. This movie is there's no levity in it. Deadly seriously. It's deadly serious. He works with a small budget what he has. Much of the dialogue is um is actually ripped from the journals of people of the era. So they talk in an incredibly difficult to understand um old English fashion. I think I put the I think I put the closed caption on for this yeah. one too. Yeah. Plus the two lead actors although they're in Massachusetts they they immigrated from uh, I think England or Scotland yeah. and uh, they have heavy accents. So you might do yourself a favor the first time you watch yeah. you might want to turn this on the This movie makes caption. the dialogue in Brick look simple in terms of um, its comprehension, you know, the ability to comprehend the dialogue. So, you know, these movies have a lot of similarities. Um but yeah, I mean, I think Brick is great because I think it's really frightening really well made and if you just go into it and you drop all the 2020 uh political pretext when you watch it which by the way didn't really occur when this movie was made it is just a terrifying witch story of a family being tormented now we can get into the plot details in a second but steve you told me earlier correct me if I'm wrong you don't like this movie i don't like this movie why it well to sum it up it it inf it's inflicts a lot of cruelty in the name of a punchline okay Go on. That's it. That's it? You just don't like That's to watch why people I suffer? Um, this movie shows... What this movie does, and this is why I don't think it is especially political, this movie um, judges the characters based on their own religious adherence Yeah. and finds them wanting, and they, they from the filmmaker's point of view, you seem to think that the characters deserve everything they've got coming to them because they don't live up to their own religious... Uh, because they have failings. Now, the whole point of Christianity, you know, God's grace and all that. But this movie's not going to have it. It's not having any of that. <laughs> this movie says, you know, okay, you 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 want to, um, you know, rend your clothes. Is that the right word? Rend yeah. rend your clothes because you had a, a wicked thought. Okay, you know what? We're going to put you to that. Right, right, right. And it 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 is absolutely cruel. Effectively cruel. This is a quality movie. Ba you know, uh, done, I assume, on a shoe shoot, uh, shoestring budget as well, mm -hmm. uh, similar to Brick. But not not so impoverished a budget that it doesn't look convincing. It looks completely convincing. Okay, so one thing I want to talk about. So I want to spoil this movie. I don't want to talk about this movie without talking about the I don't the think ending. you can. I don't think you can, can talk about this movie without giving away the ending. Yeah, I think it's impossible. So right now, you know what? This is our podcast. Uh, right. Sorry if you haven't seen The Witch. We're yeah, going to spoil yeah. it. Pause it, go watch the movie, and then pick it up because we do yeah. have to give away yeah, the right, ending. Right. Five, four, three, three, two, one. Okay. So basically, throughout the entire movie, they pull a very cool balancing act, which is 
They tell you there are witches in the woods, and yet somehow they, they make, show you. They show you the witches. You yeah. see them, and yet somehow you doubt it at times throughout the movie because throughout the movie, the twins, these two bratty twins in the movie, are constantly telling the main character, the girl, the teenage girl, that the goat the family has named Black Philip is like the devil, basically. Or like they don't actually say that, but they say the goat talks to them and like tells them things. And you aren't sure whether or not this is true. Even though you know there are supernatural occurrences happening in the woods, you have seen the witches, you're not sure these twins are telling you the truth about this goat. I will say that um, I think up until a certain point in the movie, they don't show you any supernatural um, occurrence uh explicitly yeah they imply it heavily yeah. like like the disappearing baby there's no other explanation yeah for that that you know but they don't plus the, the woman is running through the woods so fast with the baby. she's an mm-hmm. old woman and she's yes. running so fast holding this baby way faster than an old woman ought to be running right. or any old person for that matter right. but anyways um so basically at the end of the movie the house is essentially what happens is the paranoia over whether or not there are witches in the woods destroys the family from within uh, the 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 mother blames her teenage daughter for the death not only of her infant but also her younger son who has I think sex with one of the witches and then it poisons him to death or something. I didn't get that. What did you get? That he had an encounter with her. Right. Um, well, she kissed him. Yes. Yeah. But I I don't know that it was a sexual encounter. Okay, sure, but sure. he it, but but. The child is is uh, cursed. Yeah, he's cursed, and then he dies. Yes. And then over one terrible, like, stormy night, um, the two twins who are, like, locked in a shed are basically abducted as well by a witch in a really terrifying scene where this witch who is, like, in the shed with them is, like, naked and sucking the milk out of their goat or whatever, or their... The uh, cow. Their cow, yeah. It's but terrifying. it turns to blood, I think. Yeah, it's just, uh, it's just yeah. absolutely terrifying. Well, anyways, the next morning... Uh, the mother attacks her only surviving child, which is the teenage daughter, and the teenage daughter kills her mother. I think she bashes her head with a rock. Then her father comes out. Understandable self-defense. It's, yeah, there's no yeah, question about no it. No question. Then her father comes out. He's like, what the hell has happened here? And then the goat, Black Philip, rams through her father. He literally murders the father. He takes his horns, and he plows them right through the dad impales him in the goat which by the way is virtually impossible right but uh, you still at this point are not sure whether or not this goat is a sentient being right in terms of in terms of if he is what the two twins have been saying he is and then what happens is i think after maybe like an hour or so the girl freshens up after her entire family is dead (laughs) she follows the goat into some shed at night she just follows him and the goat goes into the shed, and she goes into the shed, and she basically says, in a very self-doubting way, I want you to talk to me. You've been talking to my two siblings. Talk to me. I'm demanding you talk to me. And there's silence. And she realizes, okay, I've been foolish. And she gets up, because she doesn't know there are witches yet in the woods. She doesn't know what's going on. And she gets up, and all of a sudden, the goat speaks. And the goat is Satan. The goat <laughs> has been Satan the whole time, and he has... And basically what he's doing is he's he's convincing her to be a witch. And here's where you could potentially put politics into the movie uh, because she has been really oppressed by her own family. And he is trying to tempt her and he has some of the greatest dialogue I've ever heard. And he asks her, he's trying to say all the things, you know, he can give her. And he goes, he goes, wouldst thou like a pretty dress? And then he says my all time, one of my all time favorite lines that I bug my friends with to to this day. I says, he says, 
Dost thou like the taste of butter? (laughs) (laughs) Like of all things butter, like that's the thing that's going to make her, you know, oh God, butter, I haven't had that. The goat turns into Harvey Weinstein, basically. (laughs) Oh, does he? Is that what it is? (laughs) Well, it's just fantastic. Oh, and also the the goat, he turns into the devil in a very like kind of silhouetted shot where you can't see him clearly, but he still has hooves and then he has boots. Like he turns into, I don't know what you call the type of long haired, 16th century or 17th century like swashbuckling figure kind of like captain hook almost but not a pirate mm-hmm. but that's the look you're intended to think he has taken on and basically he convinces her to sign her name in his book which gives him her soul and she turns into a witch and the movie ends she strips naked and she joins a massive uh what do you call it? Like, what do you call a them? witch coven? Get, oh, a coven, like yeah. something like that. The witches are together. They're like dancing insanely around a fire. They're all naked. And then they start to levitate into the air. And at the end of the movie, she becomes a witch. Now, if you want to get political, you could say that all the oppression, gender oppression of her caused her to be the thing they were accusing her of being, whatever. The point is she's gone through something traumatic. And at this point, it seems like a better idea to become a witch because otherwise, what's available to her? <laughs> she cut a she cut a a, a good deal, yeah, the best deal she could. <laughs> That's right. It's like this free was she was a free agent, yes. And quite frankly, nobody else wanted her. <laughs> this movie's tone completely changes to a wicked uh, punch. Like I said, a wicked punchline. This movie, I, I, it's it's not a Pilgrim's Folk Tale. It's a witch's folktale because it's told from the point of view. It's of almost witch. like a horror a story witch. of a witch. It's a right. backstory. Um, they see these these um, people out in the woods who call themselves reli- you know religious. This is the fantasy of a witch yeah. seeing um, you know the the implications of of, of you know the religious adherents turned in on them. Mm-hmm. You know. By the way, what the hell happened to the twins? Are they even seen? Are they? They're gone. I think that that witch who broke into the barn they uh-huh. were like trapped in ate them. Because, so here's the deal. Here's why it helps to know a little we bit lose, about... We lose track of the twins. Here's big, why, big here's why it helps to know a little bit about witches. Apparently, the reason they abduct the children is to basically melt them into an oil that is necessary for their brooms to fly. Yuck. Yeah, that's what the first witch <laughs> does to the infant she steals. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to assume that's what she's also done to those two younger twins. Mm-hmm. Is that she's turning them... She's going to melt them and turn them into an oil. But it doesn't matter what happened. They're dead. Those two twins are dead. Everyone in that family's dead. Those two twins are not, you know, lost in the woods somewhere. They're goners. That witch got them. Any attempt to cling to maybe a not not a happy ending, but a dignified ending or a, you yeah. know, good triumphs, that's gone. It's totally blown. And that in, in, like in that sense is, is unique. Do you like the ending? Actually, Compared to the rest of the movie, do you like uh, the ending? Yeah, but I don't like the because it is a it's a pretty funny punchline. What I don't like is the director's skill at depicting the cruelty uh, of the family. Oh, I mean, okay. I, I, I think it makes sense. It was sense. hard to watch. It's, it was hard very to watch hard suffer. to watch. It is very hard to watch the children suffer. It's very hard to watch um, the parents suffer yeah. and toil. Although you'll notice and, uh, he makes the twins dickheads. The twins are not likable <laughs> kids. So by the time they're murdered, you're like, oh, well, you know, they were kind of jerks. Well, they never even, again, I have no idea what happened to the twins. I have no they're idea. They're dead, Steve. The, the witch came in there and laughed at them as she was <laughs> drinking blood. Like, they're dead. They're goners. You're, you're holding out too much. I'm still here. trying to cling to that happy yeah, ending no. where they somehow survive. Uh, it's the same problem I had with The Sixth Sense. Okay. Okay? In that um, it takes seriously the, um, the cruelty it inflicts mm-hmm. 
on children and and also the family. Yeah. And uh, that's a lot for 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 a punchline, or, or in the sixth sense uh, you know, case, Steve, for for entertainment. I totally agree with you, and all my friends will tell you I have a hard time watching movies where children suffer, especially now that I'm a parent. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I find it a really manipulative and cruel way to get my sympathies for a character. But the reason I'm okay with it in The Witch, The Others, The Sixth Sense, is because I don't take those movies seriously at all. Because to me, these are these might as well be fantasy movies. It's different I when agree I, with you. It's with different the when others. I watch a movie. It's different when I watch a movie where a kid's died of cancer in the first scene, right. so you can have some sympathy for the dad. I can't watch movies like that. I can't watch movies where things happen to children that can actually happen to them. You know what I mean in real yeah. life. I don't believe in witches, the dead, you know, the ghosts or anything else. So those horror movies, they bother me less. I'm able, I don't really like horror to begin with, but I always admire horror when done well, because I think it's one of the two worst genres in movies, which is horror and action. Well, I think, I think the others is a perfect example. It's one of the best horror movies of all time. Absolutely. Totally agree. I have almost never seen a director more in command of the art, of how he's working the audience, and yet there's at, at no point do you you find this is horrible cruelty inflicted on them. They do go through an obvious ordeal, especially before the movie even begins. But that movie struck a really fine balance that this movie doesn't, and intentionally doesn't. I'm not saying that he erred, he wasn't successful in pulling off what he did. I'm just saying he shouldn't have tried. <laughs> right, so, okay, so here's... Here's a question, basically. Um, the thing about The Witch is it takes itself so seriously. I mean, it really, it's, it's so skillfully made. It has some horrifying, iconography is the wrong word, but images. There are some mm-hmm. shots in this movie that are just absolutely terrifying and that are not told in the general... So a lot of horror movies rely on editing and not actually horror. Mm-hmm. Which is, it's it's like the quick cut. Even a movie like The Others, which we both love, is guilty of it. There are some real quick cuts in The Others that is meant to make you jump. And that's not horror. That is, that's like a roller coaster. You're not scared. Stimulation more Yeah, than you're not a... scared of the roller coaster after you've been on it. Right. As where The Witch is a slowly paced horror film where I think it's more horrifying the more you think about it. So the guy who directed The Witch, his name is Robert Eggers. And I think the difference between Robert Eggers and uh, Ryan Johnson is that Ryan Johnson is completely willing. Ryan Johnson is a director, I think, who will direct any story that sounds good, right? I, I don't, I don't know if he's an artist, so to speak. I think he's a storyteller and a damn fine one. Robert Eggers, based on this movie and now his sophomore effort, which is another movie I love potentially more than The Witch, called The Lighthouse. Have you seen it? I haven't. I've been okay. meaning to see, but I haven't. I don't seen know it. if you'll like it because it's such an odd movie. Mm-hmm. But this guy has a very, very distinct voice, a very distinct vision, and he is doing movies that are not even close to the mainstream. And I think he's probably an artist. Yeah. He is. I don't know what he's saying, but he's saying something. His movies are odd and fantastic. His fidelity to um, realism, yeah, you know, yeah. Uh, through almost the entire movie. Is gut wrenching. He is. I absolutely agree that he is an effective, skillful filmmaker. It seems like it should belong to a different movie. I think he overplayed the realism of the cruelty so much that it diminishes the punchline of of of. He you is know, the only the ending independent director whose second movie seemed more independent than their first movie. Oh. The Lighthouse is black and white. 
Um, and even though it's got two big actors in it, the dialogue is still very much the same. And by the way, The Lighthouse is more of a comedy. And it really veers into Coen Brothers uh, dialogue, mm-hmm. where long monologues are absolutely hysterical. But it is even more discern- uh, what is the word? Is even less comprehensible than The Witch, <laughs> what it is about and what happens. But the guy has a voice and a vision, and I don't know how many movies he's going to get to make. Um, I don't know who produces his movies. I do know there is a woman in Hollywood. She is an heiress. She's, I think, around my age. Um, and she loves movies, and she is the woman that finances P.T. Anderson's movies. And apparently, she's a she is who I would like to be if I was super wealthy uh, and had a ton of money. Which is she knows good movies, and she knows who makes good movies, and she finances these movies regardless of whether or not they're going to make money. And I read a big article about her, probably in Variety, I believe, either Variety or like Vanity Fair, but. The point is Robert Eggers is going to need the generosity of the financiers to make his movies. If he continues on the path he is con- he is on, his movies are always going to be well outside the mainstream. As for Ryan Johnson, I think he will skillfully make anything thrown his way, so to speak. Right. Well, Anderson took a little, you know, nurturing. Wes Anderson? Oh, no, no, P.T. Anderson. Oh, P.T. Anderson, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, because he, his first couple of movies didn't make a lot of Only money. one. Only one movie. Uh, well, hard, 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 hard Eight. Hard that's uh, it, though. But I think Boogie Nights is a big success, isn't really? it? Really? Yeah, I think... I would he, have to look that up. That's, that's He slumped. All right, so my opinion, P.T. Anderson's the best filmmaker in the world. Just straight up right now. The, the, the number one, you gotta go see this guy's movies. But he slumped after Boogie Nights, according to people. I personally like Magnolia. I personally do not like... I know people who despise Magnolia. I thought it was fantastic. Yeah, I like Magnolia. I think it's good. I don't like Punch Drunk Love. I'm not a fan of that movie. I just don't think it works. I thought it was okay. Um, I, I thought it was interesting, but yeah, it, it was definitely a step down. Now, here's where I part company with the entire planet, and that I couldn't stand... Uh, I think... It, there Will Be Blood? There Will Be Blood. All right, we're gonna, we can't even do that now. That's we true. can't talk about that. But what I was going to say is that... P- I can stand it, but I, I have a major problem. Regardless with of whether or not you like There Will Be Blood, mm-hmm. P.T. Anderson at There Will Be Blood became the Kubrick of his generation. I mean, every movie he's made since has been wildly different from his... You know, he was borrowing heavily from um, Martin Scorsese and Robert Altman in his previous movies. And then he just veered the entire opposite direction and he went pure Kubrick. And now he's, you know, I think he's pretty much universally regarded by film people as as the best American filmmaker. And even American filmmakers believe this, including uh, Quinn Tarantino, who, you know, a guy not shy to praise himself, (laughs) has basically been like, yeah, P.T. Anderson's the man. He's the guy. Um, I, I'm not sure I would have agreed with that until I saw Phantom Thread, which I... I love Phantom Thread. I, like I said, I, I don't think I've ever seen a movie more fluidly directed. So the point is this. Robert, P.T. Anderson started with Boogie Nights. That's a crowd pleaser. It's a great movie, but it's a crowd pleaser. Robert Eggers is giving us second half of P.T. Anderson's career <laughs> without the, the commercial concessions of the first half. And I don't know how long he's going to get to make movies without making these commercial concessions. I, I I disagree with you. I don't think uh, Boogie Nights was a. Uh, That's a fun uh, movie. It's like Goodfellas. I I don't think it was a commercial concession though. There's nothing wrong with truly enjoying, um, showing a good showing the audience a good time. And like I say, I, I think the the problem with Eggers and I, I I kind of agree with you. I I see obviously there's so much skill there mm-hmm. and so much interest that you know his path could wind up being you know terrific. He could be one of one of the greats. Uh, I guess we have to see. I think, if but he, his judgment, in my opinion, 
aired tremendously, and, and that that poor judgment could haunt him too. I think that he has the potential to go the David Lynch route, only be quite frankly a better writer and director. I like David Lynch, but there are times I'm not sure if what I'm watching is actually good. Um, it's just that because David Lynch, if you hear him talk, he's so nuts. He's just so out of his mind. And I can't tell if David Lynch, I can't tell if David Lynch thinks we're supposed to conform entirely. Otherwise, the other option is chaos. Or if he's saying the notions of conformity versus nonconformity are a joke. But some David Lynch movies, the bad guys, you know, they're doing a bad greaseball impression, right? They look like greasers. And I can't tell if, if this is just poor writing and acting and directing, or if this is very much in on the joke. He can sign it off as camp. <laughs> and, yeah. and therefore, it is clever. By yeah. the way, um, I never saw Eraserhead, Not, which I, is oh, another director. I can't do it. I can't do Eraserhead. But the, the whole point of this, this um, I, I don't know if you wanted to wrap up no, uh, no, keep uh, going. The Witch, but um, the whole point of this, we were talking about uh, great directorial debuts, and we, we listed two, but it would be kind of fun to think about you know, to, to mention and consider some of the others and okay. some of them that, yeah, that relate. I think um, the Maltese Falcon is one of, I think everybody agrees that uh, Citizen Kane is the greatest uh, yeah. film debut of all time. Without question. Not going not gonna to dispute that. Um, but uh, I think uh, the Maltese Falcon Who is, is one of the greatest. Is John Houston? Houston. Houston. He wrote it, directed it, and... I've never might, seen it. Be, be, because it was made in the 40s and they didn't have the... It was actually made, I think, a year before Citizen Kane. And it, it didn't have the visual panache. People might think, oh, it's, it's a great acting, a great uh, dialogue. But, oh, the directing is just so... No, no. This movie is one of those kind of... Uh, it's like a sort of a Sidney Lumet movie in oh, which cool. a lot of... Uh, a lot of the um, action takes place in just a very few rooms. Okay, you know, yeah, it, it's it's his it's his editing rhythms. It's his directing the acting, and you know the use of certain um, uh, lenses in order to get the most you know uh, distortion out of a, of a character. And but the dialogue is just phenomenal. Bogart, he, I don't think he's he ever had before or since this kind of character before. He you know he played gangsters. And he's not playing a gangster here, but he seems in a way more ruthless than the other character, the other gangsters he played. You know, Steve, I bet if we went to every major Hollywood executive and we said, "What's the greatest directorial debut of all time?" They would not say. Um, excuse me for one second. They would not say um, that it was Orson Welles, Citizen Kane, and they would say it was Jaws because Jaws made a ton of money. We're not <laughs> counting his made-for-TV movie. We're not counting Duel. that. Now, some people we can't count Duel. Duel. It's on some, TV. Some people no. It was released theatrically in in Europe. Also, um, it wasn't Jaws was not his first movie. It's not. No. What's his first movie? The Sugarland Express with Goldie Hawn. In theaters. In theaters. All right. Then he I made take it in 1974, back. the year before Jaws. Pauline Kael said, "Quote: This is the finest debut of an American director since Citizen Kane." Is it good? I saw it. I don't see. I don't. It's it's good, but it's not. Gr- I didn't see the greatness that she did. Okay, I have to see that movie again because I, I saw it not just a few years ago, and I thought it was really. I thought it was pretty good. I didn't see the greatness. She did have a caveat. She seemed to appreciate the pure directing. She mm-hmm. said he, Spielberg could 
it wasn't a terribly deep movie and he could become a shallow filmmaker that was her yeah, words right, at the, right. you talk about one of yeah. the all-time calls. great yeah. calls this is right up there with tom shale saying this new happy day show it's mediocre but if they start focusing on the fonds yeah, they may right. have something he actually said that yeah. when he reviewed the episode and you know he became a legend but the point that. is i can't use jaws then as a comparison to wells which i think you know the thing is when you were the one who came to me with the idea of the directorial debut and I struggle to think of ones that I really liked, that were really good, especially in the modern era, which is what I wanted to go with. Um, even Kubrick, I can't go with that. Fear and Desire is not great, or whatever that movie's called. It is Fear and Desire. Yeah. I've never seen it, uh, not that I recall. And you know, Or is it Killer's Kiss? Did Fear and Desire no, come out in... Fear, Fear and Desire was his first uh, okay, okay. feature-length movie. I don't even think Killer's Kiss could have really... Mm you know, counted. The killing, maybe, but not Killer's Kiss. Yeah. Well, oh, there's the Coen Brothers, of course. There's Blood Simple. Blood Simple. I, I saw that when it came out. I never saw anything like it. Yeah, and we almost Now it, people think. have borrowed so heavily from the style of Spielberg and Cohen mm-hmm. that the, the technique might not impress, but I think even now it probably still impresses. It was amazingly slick, even if it wasn't the deepest movie. And that, too, like... Yeah. Like, um... Brick borrows heavily from the past. I don't know if the proposition was John Hillencoat's first movie, but I don't know. but if it is, that's one of them. The mm-hmm. the proposition is a top ten all time favorite movie for me. I made a list of some uh, um, pretty important uh, first movies. Okay, and it, it's it's kind of funny if you try to go back to see say John Ford. You know you're going to see. 1915, 1920, 1925 movies that, uh, you know, he was learning how to direct. Mm-hmm. Hell, everybody was learning how to direct. Yeah, yeah. So you don't get the first great, they're not going to have great resumes. So unfortunately, it is kind of skewed towards... Yeah, older films. Um, yeah, towards newer directors, unfortunately. Um, Quentin Tarantino. Sure, of course. Has to My go Best and... Friend's Wedding is his uh, first movie, not Oh, uh, good. I'm glad. I'm glad. Then we don't... Uh, I don't even know what My Best Friend's Wedding is. I've never heard of it before, but apparently... I looked it up, and apparently... I, Theatrical release? I, I don't know. I, it, I, Straight to home video it's just, it's does just not listed. count. Okay. Well, let's, let's, we can concede and say Reservoir Dogs. Also, I'm not sure how long it is. If it's if it's an hour under, no. can you really call no, it that? you cannot. Well, that, that's interesting because Spike Lee's first movie it, it should be She's Gotta Have right. It. But uh, Joe's <laughs> Bed's Toy Barbershop, <laughs> I'm sure I'm mispronouncing that. And how was, long is it? That was like 62 minutes. No, it doesn't okay. count. That's, a, that's an HBO pilot. Then She's Gotta Have It is the best. And I remember hearing um, somebody ask uh, Spike Lee about that movie. And he said, well, the... The problem I have with it is I, I, I let some some bad acting in. Yeah, yeah. And he's right. Well, he's right himself. But you know, <sighs> people love do the right thing. I'm gonna be straight up. I got a problem with do the right thing. I don't. The main character is so uninteresting, played by Spike Lee. He shouldn't have cast himself. Should not have cast himself. No. Like, like the problem with with do the right thing is everything people love about that movie, which is absolutely right, which is all the the whole world he creates. Every little character so well fleshed out. Except for the main one, Mookie, right? Is, is it Mookie? I think it is, yeah. 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 Like, um, every single character in that movie is incredibly interesting and fleshed out, except himself, and he has the <laughs> most screen time. And then all. Well, whole... guess what? He, he has plenty of screen time, and she's got to have it, too, because yeah, he bet. plays one of the three mm-hmm. three men that uh, revolve around this woman's world. And, and uh, I don't think, I'm not sure he worked much with any of those actors, except himself, mm-hmm. later. So it's, it's, it's not that. 
I, I thought it was an intelligent movie. It's really I never saw it. I never it's saw she's good. gonna have it. it. It's pretty good, but you know. Christopher Nolan, it is you I've it seen is follows following and I don't, it is I don't love clever. following. I don't love following. It's so amateurish. It's kinda like if Brick had been a couple levels lower in production <laughs> quality. Yeah. Um Memento, I mean, we can have a whole conversation one day uh-huh. strictly about Christopher Nolan. I've never been higher on someone and then lower on someone. When I loved Memento when it came out. You know, I'm a 17-year-old high school student. My whole identity revolves around the fact that I love movies. People know me. That's the movie guy. He knows everything about movies. And that movie, man, I was like, you guys got to see Memento. Like, this is the movie. And now, man, I couldn't be lower on Christopher Nolan. He is the movie that maybe maybe I fall into this trap as a 17-year-old, but he is the movie that who makes movies for dumb people. Dumb people think, think his movies are smart. And if you have ever said... The Inception was smart. You're probably a dumb person. Sorry, pal. I had to, you know we only got ten viewers, but I can afford to lose one. <laughs> I think some of his movies are very smart. Which one? No, Steve. No. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Which one? The, the two Batman movies I think are very, oh, very that's, smart. That's another podcast. That that's another okay. podcast. Um, of course, you talked about uh, Damien Chazelle. Yep. Whiplash. Mm-hmm. Terrific movie. Um, let me let me ha- let me tear up somebody's uh, pronunciation of, of their name. Uh, Alejandro Inaritu. Oh yeah, the, am I speaking that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Birdman guy, right? Uh, yeah, yeah. And then the Revenant. Which, Did, you know. Was it in Morris Peros? Yes. There was. you go. That's that's a world class debut. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, it was amazing. I just recently saw it for the very first time, and you can really see it has more energy than. Um, the, the, the Revenant? No, uh, the next movie he would do is an American movie with Sean Penn. Oh, that movie stinks. Not oh, he Twenty One Grams. He did Twenty One Grams. Yes, I don't like Twenty One Grams. It's it's very very oh. similar because it re- revolves around I think a, a, an auto accident and then yeah, the devastation. It's, it's just tragedy upon tragedy. It's have you oppressive seen, in its tragedy. Have you seen Babel? Because he made that too, right? Yes, and, and you like can Babel. see the same thing. I don't like Babel. Babel. The problem I had was, uh, and I'd have to see it again to give an intelligent uh, reading on it, but. He seemed to get into that into this, um, you know, clever plot is more important than the characters. It's just not. That's good. a problem. Babel's boring. And that's not true with uh, Birdman. No. Uh, oh. it, 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 he made another. Emeros Peros. I'm, yeah. Again, so Emeros Peros and Birdman are both so good that to me he can make movies I don't really like, like The Revenant, mm-hmm. and I'll probably go see the next one. When I saw the when I saw talk about a man who has made good on his on his debut and not all of them have but he has made good on his debut made I saw Bergman I couldn't wipe a smile off my face the entire time I was watching it Steve you know I hate the Academy Awards I despise mm-hmm. them I don't think anyone deserves an award for anything I hate him now but that being said <laughs> yes Never has been somebody been so unjustly robbed of a best actor uh, trophy than Michael Michael Keaton is that his name? Yeah, was robbed for Birdman. Wh- who won? The kid who played uh, Stephen Hawking's. Oh yeah, and all he did was nothing. Oh he my He just gosh, did nothing. Man. I could do that. I don't want to sound insensitive, but he won what they call the wheelchair award. Oh, one hundred percent. There's no question. Like Michael, first of all, I don't understand why Hollywood didn't give the award. To a guy who made a meta movie about himself. And yeah, apparently he refused to play into that. He refused to play into the idea of that, you know, a role about an actor who was famous for a superhero <laughs> role and then hadn't worked in a while, was trying to get back, and here it was. Like, there's 
you know, he he wouldn't play into it, although it's obvious. Yes. But it was quite literally the role of a lifetime. Yeah. The role he was born to play. He was fantastic in that movie. Isn't Showed there more narrative the around that than the wheelchair narrative? I don't yeah. understand. To me, it's not logical. Even if you give the award for totally insincere reasons, uh-huh. it's more logical. The better narrative is Michael is Michael Keaton. It's not this kid. <laughs> Yes, but if if you want to bring quality into the equation, I know that's that's yeah. your number one criteria, obviously. Um, yeah, the Bill Murray reasoning. You know how uh, Bill Murray used to um, rate the Academy Awards. No, I don't. And oh, he did it on Saturday Night Live, and it was hilarious because every comment he would make, uh, you know, a brushing off a nominee had nothing to do with their performance. It always had to do with you know politics or, like you said, yeah. narrative. Yeah. Uh, if you're looking, but if you're looking at straight quality. Uh, Keaton was fantastic. Okay, any other, um, Steve, before we wrap up? Any oh, important oh, one? We're oh not gonna, God. I think you probably got like a hundred things there. We can't I do. Uh, Clint Eastwood, uh, Play Misty for Me. Okay. Yeah, it was, it was only okay. Um, David Lynch, er- Eraserhead. I just finished watching this morning Ridley Scott's The Duelist. Wait, that's out? Hmm? Uh, no, I'm thinking of, that's weird. Isn't really Scott making another movie about a duel with Matt right? Damon, Ben Affleck, and Adam Driver? I, I don't know. He is that. cool. He's is, is it a period it, piece? It's a period piece. It's about this, a duel. This place takes. This movie takes place in um, uh, during the Napoleonic Wars, or just before and during the Napoleonic Wars. Strange. Uh, maybe he's trying to bring things around. Maybe yeah. he did, maybe maybe he'll do a better job of bringing things around than he did revisiting the Alien franchise, which he never should have. Um. Duelist is a, a terrific movie. Uh, James Cameron. People think Terminator. I've seen uh, Terminator listed as his first one. It's not. Piranha 2. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, oh gosh, what is it? Well, the then, Spawning. The then, Spawning. Then you got to figure out how many um, Roger Corman mo- movies these guys made. Oh, yeah. You Coppola. Know? Yeah, like you can't, like half yeah. these guys are out the window just because of Corman. <laughs> that, that, that's true. Robert Zemeckis, I want to hold your hand. I've never seen that, and I've been wanting to for the longest time. It's hard to find it. Hmm. But I understand it's a terrific uh, comedy. And his second one, I think we both loved used cars. Oh, yeah. Uh, Mike Nichols, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf. Okay, there you go. That's you a know. great debut. Now, I've heard some complaints that... It's, you're giving him too much credit because it was based on a masterpiece play. No, and of course acting. not. That's ridiculous. Yeah, it, it is because it is not yeah. a, a, a fait accompli that if you adapt a great play, it's going to be a great movie. It's not fait accompli. If you adapt anything great, it's going to be a great movie. They're different mediums, and I assume you've got uh, Twelve Angry Men on there, Sidney Lumet. You know, I don't. <laughs> That's ridiculous. It's, it's probably if you if you're talking about the greatest uh, directorial debut of all time, I think it's impossible to have a debate of the five of them without having it in there. Uh-huh. It it just has to be in the top five of debuts. Well, the, the, as you know, some of these aren't aren't that good. Yeah, okay, <laughs> so, okay, so it's okay. kind of a, kind of a mixture. But yes, I as a conservative as I am, and as patronizing as that movie is, <laughs> it is just a, yeah. It is it's one of those pure pleasure movies that you can. You know who you're supposed to root for. You know who you're supposed to root against. It's not the Steve, most complex it's movie, but it's you enjoyable. Can, it's amazing you can watch movies. It's I amazing, know. It's amazing you can how enjoy I, movies when they're all against, when they're all against you. They are. <laughs> <laughs> they, they, you know, they, they, they attack my sensibility. David Lean, a movie in which we serve, which I understand is a great reputation. Great expectations? Uh, no, in which we serve. Oh, it was a serve. World War II movie that took place. It was shot during World War II. Interesting. Uh, Roman Polanski, Knife in the Water. Really interesting three character play. I just saw it a couple of months ago. Very interesting. I think it's terrific. Robert Redford, Ordinary People. That's a good one. That's I give a it good to one. Him. I give it to him. It's a soap opera. I but... like. You know what? Can I just bring something up? Because I was thinking about this earlier today. 
Um, a movie like Ordinary People does not deserve to be scorned because it wasn't as good as Raging Bull <laughs> and didn't win an Oscar. I'm serious. The whole narrative around rage, around Ordinary People and Forrest Gump is unfair because we decided to take movies that had nothing to do with one another and make them compete. And then yes. when potentially the second best movie wins of the year, we trash it. Okay, so Forrest Gump isn't as good as Pulp Fiction and Ordinary People is not as good as Raging Bull. That has nothing to do with it. I, what I think we should do from now on. Uh, another one I want to add, sorry, uh, yeah, let me interrupt you, uh, is uh, Shakespeare in Love over Saving Private Ryan, which you may not even agree, but um, I love I don't Shakespeare agree. in Love. I don't like either movie that much. Um, I, I love Shakespeare in Love, but I, I do concede that Saving Private Ryan is a once in a lifetime. I'm actually not sure I agree with either of those mm-hmm. being good, but the point is this. Why don't we do this? Do it like the AFI does it. And don't even make a list of only 10. Just say... Here are all the great movies I watched this year. Some some years it may be three. Yeah, some years it might be 20, right? And then let's say yeah. someone writes in and says, hey, you missed number 21. What about this movie? I can say, oh, you know what? I didn't see that movie. Let me see it and see if it's really good. Or you can say, you know what? I don't think that movie's good at all and doesn't deserve to be on this list. But nobody has a problem with a- with AFI when they say, here are their top 10 movies of the year. Nobody has a problem You're right. with it. They, they don't Because they're just recognizing 10 great films. They're not, they're not competing against the movies that didn't make the list. Mm-hmm. And there's no reason to even make the number finite. You just name all the movies that were made in that year that you thought were good, and you're doing everybody a service. You say, oh, I I like this guy's opinion. I haven't seen this movie. But the idea that Ordinary People's not a good movie because Raging Bull was better and didn't win some award, God, you know, God strike down the man who who makes the movie to win the award. Yeah. If that's why he's making the movie, he's not an artist. And, you know, I couldn't respect anything less, which I, I think, unfortunately, might be the case with uh, Martin Scorsese for a few years. Those years he was with the Weinsteins, uh-huh. that, that um, what do you call it, that, uh, that period of Gangs of New York, it felt very much like... You he was, was courting the Oscar? Oh, yeah, big time. Spielberg, uh, yeah. starting in 85, he yeah. started courting the Oscar with yeah. Color Purple. And Which then, is a terrible movie, by the way. I don't care what anyone says. Yeah, and and uh, it's a very insecure movie. He's really insecure in that movie. And um, uh, uh, Empire of the Sun just yeah. reeked of... Yeah, 100%. You know, oh, David Lean could do it, I can, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, a few more. Uh, Bogdanovich, uh, Peter Bogdanovich, Targets. That's a creepy movie. That's his I, debut? That's his debut. Mm. It's a little amateurish, but it is kind of creepy, and it's... It's too bad it wasn't uh, Last Picture Show. Yeah, that, that should have been. That yeah, right, been. right. You, you learn with the debuts, right? right? Truffaut, 400 Blows. I mean, okay, fantastic. Haven't seen it. Oh, I'm pulling on my collar. <laughs> Lawrence uh, Kasdan's Body Heat. Oh yeah. Now do you talk about a ripoff of, of film noir? Okay. One but the, that one is of the a weird, slick one of the, ass movie. One of the weirder moments of my life was when my dad, who really imbibed me with his love of movies, told me how much he loved Body Heat. Really? And I think I was in college and then I went and saw it. Uh-huh. And I just didn't like the thought of my dad watching this movie. <laughs> <laughs> just, my dad doesn't watch these kind of movies. Just, you just don't want to you know, you, you 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 see how turned on you are at the moment, and then you think about <laughs> You know, my dad probably was feeling the same way. Yuck. It's just, it's just not a, you know, it's not a good feeling. <laughs> but you gotta admit, it, yeah, it was a slick movie. Oh yeah, uh, for sure. Um, Richard Crenna, who plays the husband who get, gets killed, he thought this was like a borderline porno movie. We can have a whole <laughs> podcast one day just on the career of William Hurt. 
and what it is and what it was and where it's going and why it went where it is <laughs> and why it didn't go where it should have gone when it was what it was. He's an amazing actor. He's an amazing actor an who amazing could have had it all. And he did have it all. And then he didn't have it all. And it seems like he chose to not have it all. And Overnight, he started taking character actor roles. Yeah, what not, happened Yeah, here? I know. I know. That, that's, he was... I don't know, maybe you rejected the whole uh, Hollywood... Nobody ever used being handsome so much to their benefit only to stop using it. <laughs> <laughs> That's true, because Johnny Depp, from the beginning, yeah. when he take, he, he revolted against right. you know, his own good looks, but uh, you're, you're right. Um, let me knock, knock out a few. Yeah. Darren Aronofsky, Pie. Okay, people like it, I don't. Continue. It, yeah, if, if you can yeah. explain to me what the hell that movie's about, okay, fine. David O. Russell, Spanking the Monkey. I've never seen that, and I would like I to. I hear it's good. I just want to say too. one thing about Darren Aronofsky. I don't want to talk about that guy, because I know he wants people to talk about him. <laughs> All right, continue. <laughs> there is a spite that I feel for Darren Aronofsky. Yeah, I, I do too. Um, Steve McQueen, Hunger. Yes, I was going to say that one. I have never seen that. I saw Shame. It's a little, which was... bo- it's a little boring. Hunger's a little boring. It's certainly no 12 Plus Years five. a Slave. I would have thought um, Shame would have... I guess you, you learn, he learned how to make Shame with He's with a hunger. good filmmaker. Yeah. Um, Catherine Bigelow, The Loveless, which he, she co-directed. Not now, Point Break? Huh? It's not Point Break? Oh, no. She actually made Near Dark, which should have been... God, Point Break is great. Point, <laughs> should... Point Break is great. I rewatched Point Break It is recently. not a great movie. Oh, it's so good. <laughs> oh, Point Break is so good. All right, continue. It is so much. Okay. Uh, Barry Levinson, Diner. Fantastic. Diner's not good. Fantastic Not debut. only is Diner not oh, good, Barry Levinson is not good. Barry Levinson is straight corny. He is corny. Diner is fantastic, and his career, for a while, it, it, it tracked that. Tin Men, a terrific character study movie. Uh, Avalon, a little sentimental. But then he, he, then he became a conventional Hollywood director, and he, and he blew it. I, yeah. I, I admit that, but I love Diner. Absolutely uh, love, love Diner. Drew Goddard, Cabin in the Woods. Don't Very clever. It. Don't know it. They Cabin, remade it. That comedy? I thought they remade Cabin in the Woods with Josh Whedon. It turned into like a horror movie or something? Was that Josh? I Josh Whedon made a. It might be, but I think Cabin in the Woods is a remake. They've remade Cabin in the Woods. It, there has been a remake by Josh Whedon. You know, we gotta. Was that Josh Whedon? I don't know why. I no, it, well, I'm saying the one you're looking at is probably the original. No, it, it was the one that was made just a few years ago with Sigourney Weaver as the as the. Uh, um. Mm-mm. Anyways, continue on. Okay, we're gonna wrap this thing up. Okay. Um. Greta uh, Gerwig, uh, Lady Bird, absolutely. Is that her debut? That yeah, that was her okay. Was her fantastic, first movie. yeah, good one. Uh, Alex Gardner at Ex oh, Machina. Okay. Rewind. Greta Gerwig is a filmmaker who made good on her debut. Her second movie is fantastic, and it's Little Women. Her second movie is not fantastic. Little Women, full of problems. Uh, full of problems. You know what? This this podcast has gone too long for me to, <laughs> okay. to debate you on this. By the way, it was Drew Goddard. Joss Whedon wrote, co-wrote the screenplay. Okay, good, good, good. Okay. Um, re- real quick, John Lasseter, Toy Story. Okay, absolutely. people get ignored. People get ignored for being uh, uh, animated directors. You that couldn't be terrific. more right. Is Brad Bird in there? For Iron Giant is Iron Giant Brad Bird's first movie. I didn't put that in there, but I did see that, and it was his debut. Then you gotta go with Iron Giant. Brad Bird is a fantastic. Iron Giant's director. a classic. I actually think yeah. Iron Giant's his best movie. 
I don't actually really like Brad Bird mm. anymore. I think Iron Giant Giant's an all time classic. He also directed uh, the the ex, not the, I don't want to say he did Mission Impossible Four, which is not a good movie, and everyone seems to love it. I love that movie. Um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> what is the movie with the with the family superhero? Uh, yeah, The Incredibles. The, I love yeah. that movie. It's no Iron Giant though. Uh, and uh, one last one, Frank Darabont, um Shawshank. Oh yeah. Oh my God. Shawshank, that might be... Okay. He needed to learn to make a movie that wasn't based on a Stephen King uh, he, movie. No, he, he might still be around today. I don't think yeah, he... Yeah, agreed. Uh, well, he did make The Walking Dead, which is a hugely successful franchise. And then they, 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 they dropped him after a year or two. Here's what I, what I will say. Remember we talked about it's very rare to make a Citizen Kane debut where if you're only going to make one movie in your life, you make uh-huh. it on your debut. It's so hard because you don't have the resources available to you to make that movie. Boy... If you only made one movie in your life and it was the Shawshank Redemption, that's a good one. And keep in mind, Shawshank Redemption constantly nears the top of almost every list of movies judged by viewers. Yes. Every IMDb t- list is a, yeah. the, the greatest yeah. movie of all Every time, time people yeah. are allowed to be a part of the list making, it's always near the top. And I think mm-hmm. as a result, the AFI on their second go-round of their AFI list, I think ranked it higher, if I'm not mistaken. The first AFI list is better than the second AFI list. When did they update it? They updated it like five, ten years ago. But the second list is not as good because I think Raging Bull's too high. Mm-hmm. They made Raging Bull like the fourth greatest movie ever made or something. It's yeah, ridiculous. that's... Uh, I got a major, major problem with that. Uh, I like Shawshank Redemption. It's it's a perfect... Uh, I want to use a phrase, another phrase from Pauline Kael. A perfect audience. It's not a great movie. It's a great audience movie. Disagree. How? No. What a what a high. It's not it. That's not condescending. That it wasn't meant. It wasn't meant that way. It was not one. I give it full marks for terrific storytelling, pleasurable storytelling. This movie does not advance the the. Uh, to be a great movie, don't you? Ha- you have to be either perfect or advance the art. It of is perfect. Shawshank Redemption is perfect. All right. Too many debates happening over two movies, essentially, <laughs> which is true. Brick and The Witch. I say go see them both. This is the uh, Hidden Gems movie podcast. That is correct. The Hidden Gems movie podcast. We're <laughs> no longer the Fat Man and Little Boy podcast because that stinks. That name sucks. And this is a shameless ploy to get more listeners. <laughs> and, I, and I actually went online. There's a few Hidden Gems podcasts out there, which is why I have to include the word movies. But it only works to our benefit because hopefully some guy looking for some other podcast called Hidden Gems accidentally clicks on ours. Let's hope. All Let's right. hope. All right, Steve. It was good get some good opinions. <laughs>